Bloody Elbow presents the MMA Vivisection, the show that gives you a comprehensive breakdown and expert analysis of all the fights happening on this weekend's UFC card. Here are your hosts, Zane Simon and Connor Rebush. Hey everybody, welcome back to the MMA Vivisection with me, Zane Simon, and my co-hosts. As always, Connor Rebush, we are here once again talking about this week's UFC card going down at the Etihad Arena in Abu Dhabi in the UAE, headlined by a pair of title fights, Charles Oliveira facing Islam Makachev for the vacated lightweight title, and a bantamweight title fight between Aljamain Sterling and TJ Dillashaw with Sterling defending his belt there. It's a, it's a good card. It's a big card. Should be a pretty fun night, or fun day. It's actually, it has the best possible thing, which is that at least my time, it starts at seven in the morning, which oh. means it'll be done by uh, early mid afternoon. That. that means I'm gonna miss it live. I'm going to the I'm going to the Ohio Renaissance Festival that day. Oh no! Yeah, I'm gonna have just to, uh... when we thought you couldn't get any nerdier. I know. I'm going to have to watch it uh, after my uh, giant turkey leg-induced nap. Uh, Huzzah! Around, <laughs> around, around 6.30 p.m. <laughs> All right. Well, good to know. That ruined it for me. Honestly, oh, thanks okay. a lot. Yeah. You're going you're gonna to have a somber face when they... When they give you yield ribbing of the with the yeah. the court jester and they they hurl insults about you being a fusty plebeian. Yeah, I'm gonna go to the mud show where they've been doing the same comedy version of Beowulf <laughs> for the last uh, 25 years, as far as I can tell, and I'm hardly gonna laugh at all at the same. Yeah, I've yeah, already heard. Yeah, that's a, that's a sad thing, you know. I'm sorry I ruined that for you. All right. That's fine. I guess I'll have to, I'll have to <laughs> soothe my sorrows with mead. That's right. Lots of mead. <sighs> Pull yourself up by your leggings. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Pull myself up on my hose. That's right. By the cod piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, my cod piece is absolutely turgid for this lineup, Zane. <laughs> I got to tell you. Uh, it is a hell of a card. There's it no is. denying that. Yeah. It's a hell of and, a card. And yet, um, I'm not about to complain. I'm just saying, as I looked at it, I was kind of startled by just how much of this exceedingly stacked main card, I, I kind of had like one inescapable conclusion per fight, where I was like, oh, this is probably going to happen. I quite feel unpredictable to me, but I'm curious to see if you can you can shake me of that. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm into this, so mm-hmm. I, I'm here for it. And we got kicking things off. We've got a, a a title fight at the top here that um I know how it's gonna look, mm-hmm. but I am fascinated to see how it's gonna go because I think I think Charles Oliveira versus Islam Makachev is going to be the best version of the fight we want to see. Mm. How do you mean? I mean that I think we're going to get a lot of grappling out of it. And it might be the kind of, it might even be the kind of fight where we get a few stops and restarts to the grappling where, you know, they get up and they have a chance to do a little more on the feed and then they're right back on the ground. 
Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I, I guess I'll say first off that um, there have been plenty of opportunities to uh, to critique uh, Islam uh, mm-hmm. Makachev for um, being somewhat risk averse. Sure. I do not think that applies to the idea of him just like not grappling with Charles <laughs> Oliveira. But if yeah. that if that is the kind of risk averse fighter he is, and again, I don't think that's the case. Yeah. Then I think it would be the worst strategic decision in title fight history. Oh yeah. No, no, no. If he doesn't grapple Charles Oliveira, the chance I think the chances of him winning are yeah. really a lot lower. Oliveira will pressure him and smoke him on the feet. So mm-hmm. the first thing to understand, I think, is that in this fight, Makachev has to grapple. Yeah. Which is both, um, yeah, I mean, I guess if, if there's a feeling of risk aversion, like, is that a risky place to engage Charles Oliveira? Yes. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's, strategically speaking, not nearly as risky as most of Charles' recent opponents have believed. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right on that. I think Chucky has, has gone an incredibly long way in this, this remarkable streak of his. Um, using the fact that, I mean, he is doing a Verdome. Mm-hmm. He uses the fact that most of these opponents are terrified by the very prospect of grappling with him to essentially get free recovery time. Mm-hmm. Because let's not forget, this man has gotten dropped and or visibly hurt often more than once in like every one of these fights except the one with Tony Ferguson. Yep. Like, and like Jared Gordon. Uh, but like all of these dudes have been rocking Charles Oliveira and he has used the fact that they don't want to follow up on the ground to like most of these knockdowns, I don't think are legit knockdowns. Yeah. Um, I, I, I see what you mean. I think he's definitely getting hurt really badly. No doubt. No doubt. He's getting but, buzzed. Yeah. But when, when Justin Gaethje hit him, uh, like exiting the pocket, he pretty clearly, in my eyes, made a decision to fall down. Yep. Um, and he does that a lot. And um, I'm going to say right now that I think a lot of these guys would have had much better chances of beating him if they had said, okay, prove it. Mm-hmm. And followed him to the ground. Because let us not forget, before this incredible streak, right before it, was that loss to Paul Felder. Mm-hmm. Where Joe Rogan and John Anik were freaking out in the booth. What is Paul Felder doing? Doesn't he know how dangerous it is to engage Charles Oliver on the ground? What happened? He spent three, three and a half minutes in the first round fending off, yes, a hailstorm of submission attempts. But he was still on top of a guy. <laughs> Charles Oliveira was on his back, which we have known for decades, is strategically not the right place to be if you want to win the fight. Yep. And, and that's how it played out. As soon as and two, you, you, you know, you don't even have to just look at the Paul Felder fight. You can... Right before that, he lost back-to-back to Ricardo Lamas and Anthony Pettis. Anthony Pettis, yeah. Both by submission. Yeah. Like, they both went after him on the mat. Yeah. And they beat him. Yeah. It is doable. It is a, you know, there is a meth- there is a path there. And, I mean, even you just, you can even look at the uh, Kevin Lee fight where, you know, 
we tangled up with him on the ground, and he had he had really solid success for two rounds. He certainly did. Yeah, and yeah. had he not gassed, he may very well have won that fight. Yeah. Um, or if he wasn't, you know, just sort of Kevin Lee. Yeah. His his own particular weaknesses. Um. So yeah, Chucky has gotten so so much better at striking. I mean, I really was struck by the contrast. It it happened. Yeah. Pretty gradually, even over the course of this streak, mm-hmm. this this boom in confidence and composure and technique. Yeah, I think the the first real sign I remember seeing of it was against Anthony Pettis. Yeah, even then, I think now you go back and watch that fight, you're like, he's falling over every time he throws the right hand. Like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, no, I'm not saying that that was his his balance is off. Yes, you can see glimmers. It's been a long yeah. process, but. Even going back not quite that far to the Pettis fight, um, looking at him then striking with Gaethje and Poirier and Chandler, it's a huge contrast in how comfortable he looks, how well he maintains his distance, how yeah. much more effective he's gotten as a, an aggressive counterpuncher. That, um, that was just the moment where I remember seeing him in that fight and thinking, Charles Oliveira wants to be dedicated to this striking game that he has developed over the years. He actually is putting energy in this and he is making it a part of his offense that people will have to deal with. Yes. And from there, it has just been a slow process of building every time out where now we're at a point where it's just like, my God, who, who wants to stand with this man? And because, and I think that's part of too, why, you know, you talked about the fear of the ground game. The problem that a lot of fighters face against him is even if they don't think that they would be that afraid of grappling with him, the way Oliveira starts fights right now, he gives you no choice. And when you have no choice about how you're going to engage with him on the ground, then it becomes incredibly scary. Yeah. But it is, I think, very important to keep in mind that when he does give them a choice— uh-huh. Uh, i.e., do you want to engage me in my guard? They back off. And that is, I think, a hugely uh, um, fundamental part of all the success he's been having. Am I saying that Islam Makhachev is going to knock Charles down and then fall into the ground? I mean, it might happen. The man still runs into lots of punches, but probably yeah. no. Yeah. But the point is, is that the impression we have of Charles Oliveira now is that like it's simply too dangerous to grapple with him, and that is not the case. Yeah. This is a guy who can be outgrappled. If there is any tendency left in Charles Oliveira to break, I think that's the breaking point, is following him into what he feels is like his fail-safe, his stopgap mm-hmm. all these fights, and just saying, okay, um, what if you try to submit me eight times? What if you try to sweep me, and you can't get me off, t- off the top of you? I defend every submission, and then I'm still there, Maybe you make it out of a round and I didn't get much damage off, but guess what? We're going to go right back to that game and I'm going to be on top of you, building pressure, wearing you out, and increasingly hitting you in the face mm-hmm. more and more as the fight goes on. And um, I think, like, yeah, that opening is still there. You watch Paul Felder, Anthony Pettis, Ricardo Lamas, all three of these dudes. Uh, crushed him with strikes from top position. Yep. And two of them did that to the extent, you know, uh, nailed him with punches and elbows um, and 
outrode him in like wrestling and, and grappling top position that he desperately scrambled uh, to change the position right into a guillotine. Mm-hmm. Both Pettis and uh, and Lamas got him with the guillotine. Um, if Islam just goes for as many takedowns as he possibly can, tries to catch every kick that comes at him, uh, answers the first bit of pressure by just stepping in and body locking Charles, what is to stop him from having a pretty typical Islam Makachev fight? I mean, it, yeah, he he's incredibly difficult to sweep. He he has excellent submission defense. Uh, you know, he happily engaged in the guard of Tiago Moises, of um, Armand Sarukian, all of those scrambles. And he broke Armand Sarukian with the pace at which he was willing to engage him in scrambles and, yep. and d- dominant positions on the ground. And Davi Hamos, too. Like, he, he, he spent two rounds kickboxing, but the moment he decided to, t- to just take him down, he just dominated right. him on the mat. And that's a fight where he had every reason to, to try out his striking a little yeah. bit. And it, it was a risk of a viable way of avoiding risk to just keep, you know, Davi Hamosh, who has a wingspan of about eight inches yeah. at range and pepper him. That's not a good idea against Charles. I don't think he'll do it. I think he's going to grapple as much as possible. Yep. I think we are in for a, a sad reminder of the fact that, yeah, you can beat Chucky that way. Uh-huh. That's one of, in fact, the classic ways of beating him. Yeah, I actually just saw uh, just earlier today, maybe last night, but I saw an interview from a former Bloody Elbow staffer, uh, Shaquille Majuri, mm-hmm. and uh, he was he had done an interview talking with uh, Makachev or Makachev's team about the strategy for this fight, and it was very much like people freak out about his grappling too much. And we need to be defensively sound in top positions. And like, you know, the thing we've, we've even said for years now that between them, between Habib and uh, Islam, Makachev is, is the technical one, Mm -hmm. you know, Habib was the insane athlete who could just bully people with wild strength and power and not, not untechnical. He had, he had very good, you know, fundamental, solid things that he would do. But he was more capable and more willing to kind of blur the lines of technique. Yeah. And, uh, and Makachev, he doesn't have that athletic gift, yeah. but he is refined. You don't see him make mistakes when it comes to wrestling and grappling exchanges. No. Just doesn't happen. No. I mean, like, yeah, there are going to be some moments, some crazy scrambles. Like, yeah, when yeah. he fought Sarukian, he... Um, got taken down once and gave up his back and got back to his feet, but he was never in trouble. This yeah. is a guy who knows when it's a good idea to and, give up your back. And yeah, I'm I'm very interested to see. I mean, Charles chasing transitions. Yeah, exactly. The, the sequence he hit on Justin Gaethje to finish that fight is one of the most beautiful submission grappling sequences I've ever seen. And hey, you want to call it a glove grab or whatever too? The way he tangled Dustin Poirier up, where yeah. Poirier was not even really engaging him on the ground. Yeah. He just had like one foot slightly caught. Yeah. And Oliveira latched on and just drug himself into back control to submit him. Yeah. Well, no, actually, I think he drug himself into back control and then the round ended and then round two, the next round started and he submitted him. But either yeah. way, 
we've seen both of those guys freak out in a very similar way against Khabib. Yep. Uh, I've never seen a Slamakachev even in the in the one fight where he has been tested. And that's really the only cause for concern here, I guess, is that uh, Charles is insane. Yeah. And Makachev has not faced somebody who is as well-rounded, as dangerous, and as uh, wild and aggressive as, um, as, as Oliveira. Yeah. But even in the one sort of war he's had, that fight with Sarukian, he seemed perfectly in control, one step ahead, calm, and didn't tire out at all. And that was yeah. a t- torrid pace. And, you know, that's also got to be the value, too. You know, I don't want to place too much on uh, coaching and all that and environment and camp environment. But one of the things we've always said about Khabib as well is that he's an, he was an incredibly good game planner. Just especially when he came to grappling and wrestling. Like, he knew exactly, he, he had a great ability to know exactly where the gaps in, a, in an opponent's grappling game were mm-hmm. and to exploit them. You know, it was like when he fought Gagey and there was all this like, oh, well, you know, Gagey's never been taken down. He doesn't get taken down. How do you get, how do you take Gagey down and take advantage of that? And you go back and you watch and there's like the one takedown he gave up to Eddie Alvarez. And it was because Gagey... When somebody shoots on him, he sprawls instantly. Super heavy hips, super flat-out sprawl. And Alvarez just got him pan- to pancake so fast that he could duck around the side and get to a back body lock, and that's how he, how he took him down. You go to the, the Khabib fight with Gagey, and you know, uh, Khabib shoots, Gagey sprawls, Khabib moves around to the side, gets around to his back, body locks him, takes him down. Like he knows how to plan for people. He knows how to plan set up. Okay. This is how this guy's going to move on the ground. These are the, these are the places he's going to go. This is, these are the traps that I can set to put him in a position where I'm going to end up in mount on top of this person, breaking them. Yeah. And Makachev, you know, I, he's going to be ready. Yeah. So, so as exciting as this fight is, and of course with with Oliveira in there, there's such a chaos factor. Yeah, um, yeah. Like I look at it, and my first impression that Makachev should be a decent favorite just kind of holds up under whatever amount of scrutiny I can apply to it. Like, yeah, there's always, you know, he didn't even get a chance to grapple with Adriano Martinez. There's always a chance this fight goes that way. Oliveira sure. is a violent dude standing. They're going to start standing. There could be, you know, things can happen. But if I'm looking at the fight as a as a whole, I think that Makachev is going to find that if he gets in on takedowns against Charles Oliver, Charles Oliver is probably going to give many of them up. Yeah. He's just going to be like, okay, well, let's try it. You know, I'm willing to let you grapple with me. Yeah. And even if he doesn't want to, I mean, Makachev yeah. is, is a and, phenomenal takedown artist. Like, yeah, this, this dude puts together such well-layered uh, multi-directional takedown threats he can hit a single, he can hit a double, he can hit a variety of like judo style tosses and throws, he can trip, he can just go to a rear waist cinch, he has mm-hmm. lifts, he's got low takedowns, high takedowns, like, and they come one after the other so that whatever you do to defend one angle of attack, he's already on the next angle you've just weakened before you can adjust. I mean, yeah. Um, Again, I have to emphasize, it would be insane if he didn't grapple with Charles. Mm-hmm. Um, 
even if he even if he burns a little time before doing it, he may very well end up in trouble. Yeah, I mean, Charles then, is gonna, Charles will create trouble, whether it's for him or his opponent. Yeah, that is know? his style. Yeah, creating chaos. But um, even if Makachev does end up in trouble, so long as he isn't finished with one shot, we're going to end up in a grappling sequence yep. where Makachev is just, I think, too dominant, too technical. Too patient. Too patient, that's, yeah. That's and really I think he can really afford to slow cook Oliveira um, in this fight as long as he's getting takedowns relatively early in the rounds. Mm-hmm. Or even even just creating scrambles and, and engagements on the ground or against the fence, there's way more reason to to trust Makachev's gas tank over five rounds, I think, than there is Oliver's. Yep, I agree. But I like the fight, and I especially like the the idea that this is going to be a grappling battle where the opponent is willing and ready to take Oliver on in that round. Because oh yeah, that's that's incredibly fun. It's it may be Charles's weakness. That may be disappointing because I'm a big fan of Charles's fighting style. But uh, all those fights where people out grappled him were just as awesome as all of his other fights. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be fun. There's it'll no be doubt. a great fight. Yeah, it'll be the most fun. I think I've seen anyone um, who, whose main successes will be them just or, or main approach will just have to be them trying to resist Makachev. Mm-hmm. Usually that's so one directional. And here it, it can't it can't possibly be anything but competitive for a while it is unquestionably the most dangerous and dynamic guard grappler that makachev has ever faced yeah most dangerous grappler in general well yeah i mean like davi hamosh is a really well decorated high level grappler yeah but in terms of mma but in terms of submission grappling oliver i mean he literally holds the record for most submission wins yeah yeah he's a a killer so it's going to be fun yeah Great fight. Odds on the fight. Charles Oliveira is the underdog. Very slightly opened at plus 250, jumped up to plus 340, and is now currently down around plus 150. Been uh, riding right in that range of the plus 200 to plus 150 for the last three months or so. Yeah, I would honestly be fine with this being around 200 or a little higher or lower either. Yeah. Makachev opened at minus 300, dropped to minus 400, and is now currently all the way up at minus 183, having gotten as close as minus 161. So late money sure. coming in towards Makachev. Yep. After after they, they, got, they started wide, got close, now they're separating a little again. Mm-hmm. All right. That brings us to a Bantamweight fight. Aljamain Sterling, TJ Dillashaw, and... Um, yeah, this is another one. I'm I'm pretty interested in how this is going to go mm-hmm. because Dillashaw is he's got a he's a, he's a very you know close to impossible person to just out grapple. Yeah, over his career, really thus far exactly impossible. Yeah, no one's ever done it. Yeah. I mean, Dominic Cruz did hit four takedowns on him, but it resulted in 33 seconds of control. <laughs> yeah. And probably a uh, half of those seconds are like pressing Dillashaw against the fence. Not even. Yeah. Because by my recollection, he popped up within three seconds of being taken down every time. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. Just really insanely hard to stop TJ Dillashaw. Even if you beat him, it's insanely hard to stop him from having the kind of fight he wants to have. Yeah. You know, Dominic Cruz, Rafael Santao, they both they both won very close contested decisions, but they didn't like TJ Dillashaw still, you know, landed lots of strikes. Well, I mean the Asuncao fight was kind of pre pre modern Dillashaw. Yeah. Um but they both had, you know, Dillashaw got to have the fight he wanted, and they were both closely contested decisions because of that. Yeah. In fact, I, I think you could even safely say that TJ Dillashaw actually out-wrestled Dominic Cruz because he got taken down four times out of 11 attempts. Yeah. And somehow, despite only getting one of his own eight takedowns, netted more control time than Cruz. Yeah. And none of those, yeah, none of those takedowns led to any control. I mean a takedown that leads to nothing other than a brief interruption of the striking may yep. as well not be a takedown. Yep. You know? And on the flip side, so the flip side there is that, you know, the only two people to really definitively beat TJ, TJ Dillashaw have knocked him out. Yep. Which is insanely unlikely for Aljamain Sterling. Yeah. Who even at his craftiest, most technical version of his striking game is still mostly striking to keep you away from him and give him chances to set up his grappling game. You know? Mm -hmm. Um, That said, Dillashaw against uh, Corey Sandhagen, he ended up a lot more flat-footed a lot more quickly than he used to. Mm-hmm. in that fight. And, you know, it, it, make, he's, it makes sense. He's no longer, you know, he, he's getting up there in terms of age in the Bantamweight division. Mm-hmm. Was he 37? 37, yeah. yeah. 36, actually. 36 going on 37. But mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, he's also uh, off some gear as well. Mm-hmm. And... It was still, you know, he still kept the pace. It was still a tough fight. It was still a good fight from him against Sandhagen. Sandhagen's a really tough dude to beat, as we just saw against Song Yudong. So mm-hmm. even if you want to argue that he didn't win that fight, it was still a good performance. But it was not the uh, maintained, fast, energetic Dillashaw. No. It was it was a more bullying, trying to be bigger, you know, bigger shots, less... Uh, less energetic version trying yeah, to be and to be fair i think um sandhagen if i mean it was a very wrestling heavy approach from dillashaw mm-hmm. if he had just tried to do his old uh his his old usual striking approach he would have lost definitively i think yeah because i think you're right. sandhagen is a type of fighter that he has really never had to face i mean the yeah. closest parallel is dominic cruz um yeah that is a some, somewhat interesting layer to this fight is that the the two guys who have beaten Dillashaw, however, uh, well, I think Sandhagen beat him, but it was yeah. very close. I think he beat Dominic Cruz, but it was likewise very close. Those two guys who have really tested him without just outright finishing him were big. Yeah. And almost every other person Dillashaw has fought, uh, curiously enough, because he's not a huge bantamweight, have been quite short. Mm-hmm. Sterling isn't. 
So no. that's an interesting layer to consider here. But yeah, I think if he would have tried yeah. uh, the usual Dillashaw striking approach, Sandhagen, you know, it was an incredible performance from Sandhagen as well. He's too deft. He's too long, uh, too agile, too high output. I think it would have gone badly for TJ. So. Yeah. The, so, and then you have to look at, you look at Aljamain Sterling and it is worth noting that people who can shut his grab, like the, the two split decision losses when he hasn't, you know, when he didn't get quick KO'd by Marlon Moraes, mm-hmm. his other two losses were people who could shut down his grappling game, who could wrestle with him mm-hmm. and stop him from getting his grappling game going. Mm-hmm. And, um, Kind of, that that just kind of feels like it has to be Dillashaw from what we know of him too right now. Uh-huh. Uh my pause in here comes just from the big I think the biggest thing that we've seen more of out of Sterling is that his he is getting better about being a back take artist who doesn't necessarily need a takedown. Yes, I'm glad you said that. And I mean, look at his win over Corey Sandhagen. Yeah. <laughs> he just ran at him and jumped on his back in like a minute. Yeah. And if Dillashaw comes out more flat footed with more of a like, oh, you know, I, I, I have to be the, the strong, the strong old man here and bully this kid with some wrestling. And, you know, I'm not going to be able to keep up this high energetic bouncy performance chasing Sterling all over the place. Um. There might be solid opportunities for Sterling to to get a standing back take in there. Sure, you know, pressing pressing Corey Sandhagen up to the fence for three round or for five rounds doesn't present the same kind of potential grappling complications that mm-hmm. it does with against Aljamain Sterling. There's also the fact that when Dillashaw has ended up in serious trouble, it tends to be pretty early in the fight. Mm-hmm. Often very early, but even you know when Sandhagen got a flash knockdown on him, it was early in round two. Um, and Sterling has frequently been a really fast starter. Yeah, yeah. Some of, some of his most impressive wins, including the recent one over Jan, have been like tearing out the gate. Even the, I mean, even the the previous fight with Jan. Yeah, he, he obviously, and I think this is a, this is important. Sort of destroyed himself mm-hmm. by trying to push a pace he couldn't maintain but undeniably had tons of success early in that fight, pushing a pace on Jan. Yeah. I'm going to, I guess I'm going to pick TJ Dillashaw. It feels, the the basic outline here feels too right for the fights he wins and the fights Sterling loses. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I, like I say, I, I am interested because like, the Dillashaw, like I say, the Dillashaw that fought Sandhagen was different. And I'm not sure if it was just because of fighting Sandhagen mm-hmm. or if it's because Dillashaw is a different dude now. Because mm-hmm. he has to be. He's getting older. He's losing his cardio edge, synthetic or natural, however you want to find it. And he is needing to – the division has changed around him to meet his style. You know, he is no longer on the cutting edge of being a busy volume striker. Right. That is something that, uh, you know, even even Sterling has had 
that fight against Pedro Munoz where he he threw uh, 349 strikes and landed 174 of them. Yep. And, like, I mean, has Dillashaw even ever done that? No. Against no. Burrell? What were the numbers against Burrell or Cruz? The, uh, I, the, it's actually the Joe Soto fight is as close as he got. Uh, against Burrell, it was um, 140 of 270 uh, of 309 okay in the ballpark in the ballpark against well, joe also, soto it was 151 of 454 so there are also five round fights yeah Sterling munoz was only three yeah it was a yeah again a super torrid pace in that fight yeah so it was also very very hairy for Aljamain oh yeah Sterling. oh yeah yeah it <laughs> was like gassed halfway through mm-hmm. and um, and it's, that's not even just a, a, an unqualified knock on him because he fought with remarkable consistency and discipline despite that. Yeah. He also benefited from having a much less dynamic fighter than even this version of TJ Dillashaw. Yeah. Much more slow-footed and considerably more hittable. And this is not to say that Dillashaw is not hittable, but a no. considerably more hittable opponent than Dillashaw. Yeah. So, so I, I think if we're looking at a similar dynamic, mm-hmm. because the, that that Munoz fight is another one where, um, Ster, so I, again, I'm super, it's a super impressive performance from Sterling. Yeah. But it is also a very difficult fight where he could have lost it at several points. And, and, and as we've seen with Pedro Munoz, or Munoz a lot over his career, he is one of the most predictable opponents out there. He is somebody that he fights at such a set rhythm that high level elite opposition is regularly able to just fit, you know, target it and time it. Yeah. But you have to consider that as difficult as it was for Sterling, um, a large part of that had to do with the fact that like Dillashaw, like other tough fights of his Munoz was one of those fighters, uh, for whom Sterling's grappling game would just hit a wall. Like, yep. There's just no easy way to get this guy into winning grappling exchanges. Yeah. Um, so what do you think about this? Because obviously we're both leaning Dillashaw. Yeah. Um, Phil was saying he thinks Dillashaw should wrestle Sterling. I wouldn't be. I don't think it's a bad idea from what we've seen out of Dillashaw. You know, because I, you know, Dillashaw incredibly difficult to out grapple, mm-hmm. a beast from top position. Um, but also the fact that. Um, Maybe if Munoz had made him grapple halfway through that fight, it would have gassed Sterling out more definitively. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't think Sterling, you know, he was feeling his own pace, but I think he probably could have kept things up and kept his confidence if Piotr Jan hadn't just started dumping him at will. Mm-hmm. That was, like, so demoralizing. And, I mean, people underrate the extent to which just, like, having to get back to your feet eight times in a row is exhausting. Yeah. Um, I don't think I don't think it will be a bad idea for Dillashaw to use his own offensive wrestling. I mean, you have to assume that given he's never been submitted and given that he never gets held down, that Dillashaw is filled, has full confidence that he can go out there. Yeah. And he's an incredibly proud man. It seems like. Yeah. Too tempting for him to be like, yeah, I grappled with Sterling. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> that seems in his character. And like I said, that it to me that. That creates an interesting dynamic just because I think Sterling is a better back taker than he's ever been. I think that part of his game is improving. Yeah. And 
you know, there's there's always a first time to get submitted. There's, I, I mean, do I think Piotr Jan in the in the rematch with Sterling looked vastly overconfident? Yeah. Um, and like he he, it took him way too long to get going with things that probably would have worked way earlier as they mm-hmm. did in the first fight. Yes. Yep. But um, vastly overconfident kind of sounds a lot like TJ Dillashaw. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I also think that like uh, looking back at the first fight with Jan, there are a lot of similarities between Dillashaw and Jan. Mm-hmm. And uh, with with the the advantage that Dillashaw, I think, is probably actually harder to outgrapple. And um, and it was just an incredibly narrow path to victory that Sterling walked. Yeah. To win that fight. Like the margins were so thin um, that, yeah, one different thing happening in one of those rounds, he would have lost a decision. He clearly won. Yeah. But uh, with the aid of a of a pretty unprepared looking Piotr Jan and an excellently prepared Sterling, and you have to give him credit for that. The guy I think sure. tends to game plan really well, yeah, and know exactly what his opponent's weaknesses are. But it's just one of those fights where there's such a barrier to the thing he does best, and so much to deal with, even in that phase, but also you know on the feet for 25 minutes. Sterling is prone to gassing. He is very much prone to um, throwing himself into a pace he can't maintain. Mm-hmm. Against Dillashaw, he's that pace is just going to get dragged out of him whether he wants to or not. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I, I got to pick uh, Dillashaw. Yeah, it's weird because, you know, I, I would certainly pick Peter Yan over TJ Dillashaw. Yeah, right but I'd pick him over Sterling too. Yeah, well, yeah, but I mean... Just, yeah, like, I don't, you know, I don't think this is the best version of TJ Dillashaw we're seeing, but I no. I have to feel like maybe over all the years, TJ Dillashaw would have been a uniquely bad matchup for Aljamain Sterling. Yes. You know? Yeah. Have to agree. So, uh, odds on the bout. Let's see. Where is Aljamain? I'd love to see a hyper-aggressive Aljo just run out the gate and, like, Catch Dillashaw cold and run him into the fence and jump on his back. Yeah, <laughs> it would be sweet. I just don't know yeah. how replicable or um, consistent those kinds of wins can really be as a champion. Yeah, and Sterling hasn't knocked anybody out since Hugo Viana via TKO in yeah. 2014. Yeah, like if there's an avenue to definitively beating Dillashaw, it's because his busy style of pocket fighting puts him right in line for big shots, especially early in fights when he's still trying to get a feel out for the rhythm of the fight. But Sterling is not the guy to take advantage of that. Right. All right. Odds on the bout. Sterling is the favorite here. Opened at minus 220, got up as high as minus 153, currently down at minus 172. Dillashaw opened at plus 185, dropped plus 127, and is currently at plus 142. So money's still coming in on Sterling. Um, He's the champ. Mm -hmm. He's got Andrew Tate in his corner. I get it. Mm -hmm. I see the hype. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, no, I mean, like, yeah, 
and I get the Dillashaw, like he spent so much time on the sidelines. He's got his whole cheater thing hanging over his head. He just seems like kind of entirely uh, grating as a personality in a way that I I never really appreciated until oh, yeah, un, until he like got into some trouble and or like had to talk about things for a prolonged amount of time. I was like, oh wow, this is this is like a dumb Chad. This is yeah, this is an uphill battle you're fighting here when it comes uh-huh. to to likability. I didn't really. I remember when he was on the rise. I was like, yeah, Dillashaw could be like a star for the UFCs. You yeah, know, he seems like an earnest, you know, kind of a. Yeah. Uh, kind of like a you know a cool small town kind of personality. Yeah, you know, it start, yeah. started with the Cruz lead up. Yeah, yeah. It just made Dominic Cruz look like a font of charisma. Oh uh, man! We've known in the years after that that is a real <laughs> challenge. It's been downhill since then. Yeah, Cruz really lucked out. Like getting alpha male as oh, like man. your your rivals. Man, did that paint him and like yeah, getting to go head to head with just the the. Guys whose whose brains are just filled with like cuts of rump steak, like <laughs> absolute meathead camp, uh, makes yeah makes Cruz look like uh, a, a a lyrical genius. Yeah, yeah. Cody Garbrandt, DJ Dillashaw, <laughs> such meatheads. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I I think Dillashaw should be a small favorite here. Yeah, I do too. All right, that brings us to a bantamweight bout: Peter Yan, Sean O'Malley. And um, speaking of predictable fights, yeah, this is one of those fights where, like, the closer it gets, the more my brain is like, well, what if, though? What if? Not me. Yeah, I mean, I'm always dismissing it at the end of that. I was like, no. No. You you and Phil are both suckers. You're like, well, what if? Maybe Sean O'Malley's really good. No, not. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. Let me finish putting words in your mouth before you rebut. Okay. And Phil, Phil, meanwhile, is like, I kind of feel bad for Sean O'Malley. He's, he's gone the opposite direction, but this yeah. matchup has like made him respect Sean O'Malley in a way he didn't before because it's so obviously like for a man who has, who's only uh, like two steps up in competition have both made him look unimpressive at best. Yeah. Um, and like, frankly he was fortunate to have those fights both end with weird asterisks. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't feel bad. He's a, yeah. he's a pill. He's, he's an absolute little bratty drip. <laughs> and, uh, and I also have for some time been more than willing to give Sean O'Malley the credit where it's due. Like, yeah, Sean O'Malley is not a bad fighter. No, he's a very good fighter. Unquestionably yeah, very good. He, the the dude, the rank and file bantamweights in the UFC have very clearly very little chance of beating Sean O'Malley. Yeah, yeah. There are certain phases of the game where he's really, really good. Yeah. Um, but even within those phases, there are types of fights that just make him look visibly uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's when people just insistently pressure him and mm. take the easy targets. Yeah. People who don't just sell out on single swings at his head, who chop his legs, who hit him in the body. Um, yeah. They just get free damage off on him. Yeah. And um, it's Piotr Jan. Yeah, it is. I, I, I want to say, I, I, my, 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 my what if is not, what if Sean O'Malley is really that good? It's just, 
I this sort of like vague chaos, you know, idea of like, man, what if this is like your our Jose Aldo Conor McGregor moment where it just like dusts him in a moment, and then we have to hear about it for like it would be as much as like five years, as much as I really do love Sean O'Malley's personality. It would be pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. It would I would I would enjoy Piotr Jan's like brief time at the top and then precipitous downfall a lot more than I did other examples of that, like like poor Mike Brown, you know? Like yeah. he wouldn't be the only great fighter who just for whatever combination of reasons didn't get to enjoy a long time at the top. Yeah. I, I, I'm not gonna bank on it. I'm just there's a part of my brain that keeps ticking that over in my mind being like, Oh, I gotta prepare yeah. for this because it's an enticing and terrifying possibility. Yeah. Um what is far more terrifying is fighting Pyrion. Yeah. Uh probably a vengeful, spiteful Pyrion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he's been dishonored and he's gonna be out there for blood. He's gonna pressure Sean O'Malley. He's gonna he can essentially do exactly what he did to Corey Sandhagen and start even faster. Like yep. because the early pressure is gonna yield more results. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't think Sean O'Malley is like he's not dog shit dealing with pressure. Like no. He moves his feet re- relatively well. He's accurate. He's a very sharp offensive striker. Um pretty good maintenance of distance. Pretty comfortable with people being right on the edge of his distance. He he reminds me a hell of a lot. As I'm thinking about this, he reminds me a hell of a lot of Darren Till. Yeah. Yeah. Where like, you know, Robert Whitaker had trouble with Darren Till. Darren Till is not an awful fighter. But you put Darren Till in a whole bunch of different matchups against other elite fighters. And you just see the same problems over and over again. Yeah. And you see the same problems revealed in like a multitude of ways. Like, yeah, there are, in fact, a bunch of styles that work against him. Mm -hmm. The same little kind of pinch points. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and that's Sean O'Malley. Like he, he, he doesn't have great defense in general, but, uh, especially when it comes to defending anything other than his head, he's kind of a void. He really, we talked about this so much against Pedro Munoz, Munoz, that he leaves his legs behind in a way that's really like, yeah, you would really think at this point in his career, he would want to have a, a better plan for that. He checked some some low kicks from Munoz, but the problem is always that he's really quick to jerk his head back to pull to pull his head out of range. Yeah, he's a pull counter guy. Yeah, he's a pull counter guy, and as he does that, the le- his lead leg, whichever foot it is, it just stays behind. Yeah, because he and, wants uh, to be able to immediately replant on that counter. Jan's not a huge low kicker mm-hmm. um, in general, but he's going to take those openings. Yeah. Piotr yeah. is never, ever above. This is a major reason why he's so good against so many different styles. He's never above just taking the easy targets. Yeah. That is a thing like skilled veteran fighters do. That's like what makes fighters like Hafele Sunsau, um so good against like Victor Henry when, when someone like Honey Barcelos isn't. He's like, mm-hmm. you're give me, you're going to deny me the opening I'm looking at, but look at all this other shit you've left unchecked. I'm just going to hit you where you're not expecting it. Yeah doesn't have to be my favorite strike it has to be the one that's there yep um and he might also just like run sean o'malley into the fence and then take him down and crush him on the floor i mean people 
I don't think people forget. Certainly the Yawn heads haven't forgotten, but like the way that Yawn demolished Douglas De Silva on the ground. Mm-hmm. Terrifying. Yeah. You're at Faber too. Yeah, Faber on the ground. I mean, who does that? Even an old Faber. Yeah. Um Yeah, so like I, I think he can just kind of run at Sean O'Malley and and against Sandhagen. It took him a minute to come to this conclusion, but what he what he ultimately ended up doing was just sort of issuing his own jab. Yeah. And just closing on the long guy, letting Sandhagen's jab bounce off his guard, and then just extending the exchange, extending the combination into like five, six strikes and chasing him every way he tried to skirt out of the pocket. And Sean O'Malley is much worse um at resetting and cutting angles out of the pocket than Corey Sandhagen was in that fight in particular. It was one of Sandhagen's best ever versions of that approach. Yeah. And Kyrgyzstan still figured it out. So he's, I think one he's of O'Malley. Yeah. One of the notable things about O'Malley's game, and this is also why I, I the Till comparison really jumps to mind for me, mm-hmm. is that the building blocks to a Sean O'Malley win for him are almost entirely theoretical. And that sounds like a really stupid thing to say or really like needlessly dense thing to say. But what I'll I mean wait is... wait until you explain before I call yeah, you stupid. Yeah, give me that. Um, but the idea is that... Oh, you're stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't, <laughs> no. I didn't take as much explanation yeah. as I expected. No. You look at guys like Max Holloway and you look at uh, Volkanovsky, you look at Peter, Peter Jan, and the paths to them winning in fights are opened and created by the layers of offense they present. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always, one of the things I've always talked about, Jan, is like, he, he what makes him so adaptable is that he has like three or four striking stages that he will go to mm-hmm. or, and go through and he can pick any one of them out and reset at that stage as needed. Mm-hmm. You know, you watch the prototypical Piotr Jan fight and he starts, he starts out probing. He starts out working his jab, working kicks, working, you know, whatever, picking at whatever targets he's given and forcing his opponent to have to answer that offense, to have to be like, okay, well, I can't just lose a game of volume with this with this guy. I got to throw back at him. Mm-hmm. And at which point, Jan switches over to being, a, very often, to being a, a big counterpuncher. If you start throwing more, Jan will start leading less, and he will start countering more. Mm-hmm. He'll start looking for individual counters. And the response to that for his opponents is that they then become afraid of engaging with him. Like, okay, well, I tried that. Now I'm getting hit really hard yeah, in ways I don't see coming because it's on the counter when I have my own offense out there. I can't do that. And so they start shutting down and backing off of him. And the moment you do that, that is when you get the flurrying, bullying yeah. Piotr Jan who will just relentlessly pursue yeah. And break you with pace and pressure. Yeah. If we talk about certain fighters being risk averse, 
Piotr Jan doesn't like love taking risks, but he takes calculated risks really well. And one, yeah. of, the, one of the most common ones is like in the Jimmy Rivera fight. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, I'm actually like getting countered. It's tough to engage. What if I just leap forward <laughs> with yeah. huge looping shots? Like he will surprise you once you get used to this sort of, yeah, like pressuring and waiting for counter counters kind of rhythm. By just and, pouncing on you. Yeah, and he can switch between. Like I say, the thing is for him is always if he if he finds resistance at any one of those spots, he can switch to another one. Yeah, you know he he is incredibly dexterous in the kind of style that he wants to present. And like other like other great strikers, this gives him the blocks to build offense over the four over a fight, and it build to build offense, better offense, and more definitive offense on the back of real actual offensive production. Mm-hmm. Sean O'Malley, the building blocks of the best parts of his offense are entirely centered around getting you to bite on feints. Yeah. It is getting in your head that something dangerous could happen at any time. So you better not try anything. And if you do, you're going to have to try desperately and you're going to be flinching because you have so ingrained the the cost of your actions mm-hmm. because you can see I'm ready for it. You can see I'm ready for anything. I'm ready every time. No, there's nothing you could do that I won't be ready for. And this is the like this is the Darren Till thing, too. It's, you know, you he presents this visage of the coiled spring that, you know, even Robert Whitaker talked about like how stressful it was for him to fight Darren Till. Mm-hmm. It's just like, Oh my God, I see everything I do. I can see he's going to, he's got an answer for it, but it's theoretical. It's not actual. It's entirely a game played in the mind of the opponent. Yeah. And like the problem Darren Till has, like I, I expect to see it more out of Sean O'Malley. The more really good top tier opponents he has, they don't bite on a lot of stuff. They don't get in their head about feints to a degree that they lose the fight. They might they might overanalyze. They might think about it. They might have trouble uh, imagining you know they, they might have like rob whitaker did they and uh you know you can see with pedro munoz too against sean o'malley every time you know he took the he took kicks at every opportunity no matter what leg sean o'malley led with pedro munoz would would switch up and he would kick that leg that was offered to him and it was you know it was uh, there was an uncharacteristic unwillingness to sit down in the pocket and bite down on anything because Sean O'Malley was waiting there with something to offer him. But at the same time, even a fighter of, you know, Munoz's level, it sort of notch off the elite. Wasn't, he wasn't willing to lose rounds just to that style. He was out there ready to break, you know, to break it down at any point and to take whatever it was that Sean O'Malley gave him and turn it into a winning progression. And again, some, with somebody like with Jan, who can go through these modes and who can force opponents into another fight where he can use a different set of skills, 
it really feels like uh, O'Malley's willingness to 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 faint a lot, to give a lot, but not offer nearly as much as he pretends as, as he postures. Mm-hmm. It's just gonna get. It's gonna let O'Malley. Uh, it's gonna let Jan. I think it's gonna let him pick him off, and it's gonna let him start to build things that make O'Malley really uncomfortable. You know, I think that he can open up even if he doesn't feel ready to or willing to pressure right out of the gate. I think he, uh, I think Jan can, like he did with the Sandhagen fight, he can just kind of like he can get to a point where he sees enough of the feints and enough of the offense that O'Malley's offering that he's just gonna be like, okay, well, I can step in on this. That's fine. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Logically, I have to pick Peter Jan. Peter Jan here. You would be insane to pick Sean O'Malley, honestly. Yeah, but there's that little part of my head that's just like, oh god, I really, you know, the what if the what if the option that I least want to see happens? But yeah, well, it would be funny. It would be funny. It's really nothing to worry about. I it's mean, it'll be funny at least for the moment. I mean, worry about the day after. Yeah, that's the O'Malley, just... the O'Malley fans. Yeah, crawl like a lice out of the woodwork. <laughs> but up till then, up it, till it, then, it'll be very funny. All right, uh, Jan is a decided favorite. Opened at minus two fifty, dropped to minus four twenty nine. But uh, fight week is is getting uh you know un un unsurprisingly, Sean O'Malley is getting some some strong backing during uh, in the lead up to the event. He went from minus three ninety eight to minus two eighty in the past uh, two and a half weeks. And Jan opened at or Jan yeah Jan went from minus three ninety seven to minus two eighty. O'Malley opened at plus 210 jumped up to plus 321 and is currently back down at plus 228 i expect to see those lines get closer and closer to dead even by fight night frankly i was gonna say you gotta gotta respect their their conviction their commitment but uh actually you don't yeah uh sean o'malley is far too vapid to be uh only as good as he is and still have as many fans as he does (laughs) sorry it's true yeah you got to have a personality if uh, if you're going to be merely pretty good, you know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's MMA. He's got as much. He's got more personality than most most fighters, unfortunately. No, he doesn't. He just has funny hair. Yeah, well, that's that's what passes these days. <laughs> all right, all right, fair enough. Let's get to a lightweight bout: Benil Dariush, Mateusz Gamrot. And, um, yeah, this is interesting mm-hmm. because this is one where I thought it fit right into the category of, oh, I know how this is going to go. Yeah. But it actually, that, that, uh, that certainty did break down the more yeah. I looked at this fight. Yeah. There are a couple of things at stake here. Um, big one, first and foremost. Benil Dariush is his losses. Like we've talked, it's funny because he his last loss and a knockout, none no less, was to Alexander Hernandez in 2018. 
And if Alexander Hernandez's heavy, serious losses have broken him to the point of taking a what was once a very strong-looking prospect and turned him into a guy who just seems like he's never going to get a crossover into being a dependable fighter. Yeah. Getting a losing big fights in decisive fashion seems to have turned Benil Dariush into an absolute wild man. Yeah. Like it broke his brain in a whole different way. Yeah. And the fights he's had since then have just largely been him going ham on people and it working. Mm -hmm. It feels terribly unsustainable. Um, because like, you know, outside, unfortunately, poor Tony Ferguson, he is like the common other than Tony Ferguson point for so many fighters right now. Um, but other than Tony Ferguson fight, every fight he has had in the last two years, maybe maybe more, you know, go back to the Dober fight and the Moises fight too, has involved him getting hurt really badly and then just marching on with seemingly no no amount of respect for potential injury or or mayhem and just. Yeah, putting it on people until they broke. Even the ones where he hasn't gotten hurt, like the Diego Fajardo fight, it's still like, ooh, yeah, this could. You might be spending too much up until the point yeah. where it starts to really work and he takes over. Yeah, uh-huh. um, it just feels terribly unsustainable. Whereas for Gamrot, there's kind of like this. It is impressive. It is impressive, and I think beyond a lot of people's expectations as to how much he has been able to make his game work after that disastrous start he had to his UFC career. Because an incredibly consistent fighter. He's an incredibly consistent fighter and consistent in a way that a lot of times it feels like, okay, people should be able to plan around this. You know, like he's going to come out, he's going to be aggressive with his wrestling. He's going to throw left hands. If you can match him and, you know, shut it down you should be able to take him out of the fight. Mm-hmm. Um, it still feels awfully like he got gifted a decision over Armand Tariqin. But one of the things that that fight really showed is that, man, Mateusz Camera can do this forever. Yeah. Like long that- after the point where you think you noticed him starting to tire out. He is one of those guys. It just... He's either not as tired as he looks or he has, I think, correctly recognized that exhaustion is largely mental. Yeah. And as long as your mind is still fresh and you're still mentally there and ready to fight, you can get pretty damn tired before physically you actually start to fall apart. Yeah. Because he'll be huffing and puffing after two and a half rounds, uh, after two rounds, and it doesn't change a damn thing. In fact, against Sirkian, he only had more and more success as the fight went on. Yeah. And that makes this fight pretty wild because Dariush is, you know, he he is more willing to to bite down and be a wild man and break people with pace and pressure and all that than ever. But 
he's still a dude who he throws himself into exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Like Darius really does. Even the modern version, he is fighting himself to the point that either he's going to break or you will. And he doesn't, you know, it's flip a coin. Every fight is like a, a massive gambit. Yeah. And, um, you know, like, like that's, that's why in 2017, he got a, you know, Evan Dunham fought him to a draw. Yeah. Cause weirdly Evan Dunham was the only guy who like managed to call him on that, on that gamble. Yeah. But it is that, de- you know, it is pos- firmly possible. So, just given the insane aggression and willingness to bully and the general wrestling and grappling skill that he has, I got to think Darius is going to start this fight pretty well. Mm-hmm. You know, he's going to come out on fire, putting it on Gamrot, going after him, not giving Gamrot the time to really feel his way into the fight and get a rhythm and, uh, get in on his grappling from an aggressive standpoint and rather having to do it defensively. But by the end of the fight, if 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 Darius hasn't knocked Gamrod out somewhere along the way and Gamrod has yet to ever be knocked out, uh, I also expect Gamrod to start taking over because fighters, you know, for as good a grappler and wrestler and his much a wild man as Darius is, like, you know, Kiesa was able to just take him down to submit him. Well, like, he was whooping Kiesa before that. This is the thing that occurred thing, to us. Like, yeah, yeah. This is the thing that occurred to us on, on Heavy Hands, though, that actually kind of shocked me. Um, Literally the only losses, aside from the one unofficial loss to Michael Johnson... Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, a close fight and a good performance, but he shouldn't have won that decision. Sure. Um, the only official losses Darius has ever uh, picked up are, like, flash turnarounds. Mm-hmm. Like, they're all, other than the Hernandez one where nothing had happened yet, they're all fights where he's he looks great. Yeah. And then just something disastrous happens. And that is interesting here because... Um, something disastrous happening has been what has triggered Red Mist Benil. Yeah. In his recent fights, you look at like the even the Drew Dober one, you know, he's got a grappling advantage early, no problem. Um the Tony Ferguson clocked. one. Yeah. Yeah, but did he did he get like wobbled and have to go wild in that fight? In the Dover fight? I can't remember. I don't think he did. I think he just went yeah. out there and I think I think he did get clocked early in okay, that. Yeah, you you're probably right. Um but against Tony Ferguson in the uh, Dracar close fight, like he does start these fights trying to be classic Benil. Yeah. And then something goes wrong and he goes insane. Yeah. Um, but when something doesn't go wrong, he's still like a like consummately professional, well-rounded fighter. Mm-hmm. And is Gamrock going to hurt him? Yeah, that's hard to say because he does have a tricky left hand. He he is he is he's tricky and he's fast, but he also he leaves almost as many openings as Benil does. Yeah, no, yeah, less conviction and less power. Yeah, um, that's absolutely and, true, and less ability to follow up. And and however much Benil has gotten um, hurt by people, he's not he's never been someone outside of the Hernandez fight where it's particularly easy to just stop him with a single shot. 
No, and I'm I don't even know if he could get I, I wouldn't pick Gamrot to stop him with the single Absolutely shot. Absolutely not. Right. It seems highly unlikely. But I am what I'm saying is that if he can force the red mist out of Dariush, I have more faith in Gamrot than because yeah. of his insane wrestling and grappling and cardio and just his ability to stick with and have like that kind of hard fight, I have more faith in him than um you know even guys like Close and Fajera and, you know, a 40, 37-year-old Diego Fajera or Holtzman or Camacho or Dober or Moisish, I have more faith in Gamrock to stay in the fight and to, to, keep, to keep doing things that would make, you know, could make Darius really tired by Absolutely. the time the fight's over. Absolutely, but I, I'm I'm really not confident that he's going to actually get a wild fight out of Benio. Yeah, could. And if he doesn't, then what we're looking at is, yeah, maybe still a cardio edge. Although, again, I think mostly yeah. what we've seen of Darius being like, "Oh, you're really riding the line of gassing and everything falling apart," is has him. been after him going yeah. crazy. Yeah, when he just gets to grapple with somebody or box with them for three rounds at a, uh, you know, even at a decent clip. He's really quite controlled and yeah. um, and maintains himself really well, and he's devilishly difficult to out wrestle and out grapple. Oh yeah, no, I mean, especially given that Gamrot doesn't ever control anybody. This he, is true. he does rinse and repeat takedowns. Yeah, um, and it's still the effect is a pace and you know a lot of basically super high intensity scrambles that you have to deal with constantly, but. Um, yeah, I think this looks like a really close matchup. I wouldn't it be does. really surprised if Benil wins it, even without going nuts and having to finish Gamrot. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Gamrot... I mean, uh, Guram Katataladze gave Gamrot some scary moments on the ground. Yeah. No, I mean, it, Gamrot, it's all, for him, it's all about, like, getting you into these scrambles and then just letting letting the chaos be in his favor. Yeah. And it's not necessarily. Yeah. Dariush is a He's just a hell of a grappler and a, and a solid wrestler, too. Yeah. Um, I mean, the way that he dealt with Diego Fajardo, I mean, that was a torrid pace, and it did start with a, with crazy striking exchanges. But once he started finding advantageous positions on the ground, it was like all downhill for Diego. Yeah. Uh, he just took over. And, yeah, who, who's to say that he can't, like, get Gamrot's back, sweep Gamrot after a takedown, stuff a takedown, grab a front headlock, run to the back. Um there's a lot of ways or pressure him into the fence and try to tie him up and wear on him, work him in the clinch. Like Dariush is such a good, well-rounded fighter. It's, it's weird to think that this dude is, he's only 33 years old. He feels like such an old veteran. I think, you know, I think honestly, what, like whatever the, this new, like red mist berserker Dariush, it seems to be like visibly sucking the life force out of his body because Every fight, his hair looks grayer, and he looks more haggard and hangdog. Yeah, and like he's just getting angrier and angrier. Yeah, and you know it's something he's made some kind of like sacred demon pact or something. Yeah, there's like a there's a little uh, side character in the game Skyrim, which is uh, an orc who like you, it's like a random encounter. He's wandering mm-hmm. around and. What he's looking for is he's he's scouring the world looking for a warrior that can kill him. Mm-hmm. He's trying to die in battle, 
and he's like old and scarred, but he fights his ass off because it's not going to be a worthy death unless somebody overcomes him at his yeah. fiercest at his fiercest. And that is Beale Tarish. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Someone yeah. kill me. Yeah. And just like you had you, but you gotta take it from him. Yeah. I am I'm gonna take Gamrot because he's got an incredible pace. I think he can kind of he has a way of sort of sucking some of the life out of the fight on the feet. Yeah. Um, and he's probably going to hit takedowns because he's an incredible takedown artist, his timing, his entries. But I think there are a lot of avenues for Darius into this fight. And I don't know that this is the matchup to, to pick camera solely on the basis that Darius is going to finally destroy himself because yeah i think you've talked me into picking darius i'm gonna go with it there's <laughs> a good chance of him winning right yeah yeah no i like i say for me to me i think darius is gonna probably have a really good round one and i think there's a good chance that gamma has a good round three and yeah, someone gets hurt too it's like it feels like it's more yeah. likely to be gamma than it darius. does feel like it's it's more well i you know you say that but like i know darius, darius gets hurt, gets hurt. All the time. The Gamrot's plenty hittable, and Darius yeah. is a dangerous striker. Yeah, no, it's true. Like it's, but like that's just that just means it's likely that both of them could get hurt. You know. Sure. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'll take the flyer on Darius. I. I like I'm kind of jealous, honestly. I feel like having made this case, I wish I was picking Darius, but I have already picked yeah. Gamrot on heavy hands. I gotta, I gotta stick by my guns. Gamrot is the favorite here. Open at minus one fifty-five, dropped to minus one eighty-eight. Currently at minus one ninety-three. Darius opened at plus one thirty-five. Currently at plus one fifty-eight. Very little movement on these lines. Pretty close. I will say, I wish this was a five-round fight. Oh yeah, because that is where I think you really, really would get to see the dynamic play out, no matter what. Yeah. Where round four and five, Gamrot would have a big edge on Darius. Mm-hmm. But rounds one and two, Darius, you know, might have the chance to really, like, try and open this fight up and end it early. Yeah, this is, it's a really good matchup. Mm-hmm. It's a great fight. It's one, the more I've looked at it, the more more enticing it's become. Yeah. Also, funny story that that orc character is in both uh, Oblivion and Morrowind as well. Oh, yeah. It's a recurring character. I forgot mm-hmm. he was in Oblivion. I hardly played Morrowind, but yeah. All right, that brings us to a woman's flyweight bout. Caitlin Chikagian, Manon Fierro. Uh, Another interesting matchup. I mean, um, not an easy one for me to suss out, to be honest. No. We've had uh, had the growth of Caitlin. We've seen a steady growth of Caitlin Chikagian. Like, I. fair, Fair play to her. She took a couple of really hard losses to a couple of really good athletes. And she is trying like hell to make her game something that can compete at that level. I don't think it yeah. can happen, but you know, it's like she is trying to, she, she is in the Carlos Condit conundrum and she is trying to solve it. Yeah. Ne- never really fixing her problems in those like fell swoops. You'd like to see the kinds of uh, drastic improvements that superior athletes make. Yeah but definitely has become by small degrees, a much more consistent round winning fighter. Yeah. And she sits down on everything a lot more. Like she's a way better counter puncher. Mm -hmm. Uh, She, she's way more willing to invite someone into the pocket, like, but only still, I mean, she, she picks her spots really well now. Mm -hmm. Um, 
She varies her targets better, especially with her hands. Like she punches the body. She puts combinations together in the pocket. Yep. Um, yeah, she, she's undeniably become a far more consistent and effective boxer more than anything else. I mean, her. it would have been lovely to see like Holly Holm go through this progression after hitting that same wall. Yeah, right. No, Holly Holm decided to become a boring cage wrestler instead. Yeah, she was like, uh, oh, the, well, because you know what part of that is, is that she actually was athlete enough to compete compete exactly with all of you know these other top elite level athletes that she was facing. So she's like, "Well, I just got to use that. Yeah. I gotta, I gotta be a bigger bully." For her, it was just the Winkle John Styles technical deficiencies that yeah. gave her problems. The athleticism was never a problem, and still really isn't a problem. Yeah, Chikagian doesn't have the option. No, uh, to. To, to just hold people still and no. drain every ounce of life out of the fight in order to win. Nope. Um, Mano Furo has a little bit more of that. Mm-hmm. She's, she's a pretty good parallel for, for Holly Holm, in fact. Um, yeah, she does, especially the sidekicks. Yeah, big, strong southpaw, likes to be at long range, likes the sidekicks, likes the weird counter right hooks. Mm-hmm. I would say she's a, she's actually like a, uh, exchange for exchange, a better, better boxer than Holly Holm. <laughs> like, she, I mean, she, she, she has less, as, you know, maybe this is like the downside of, of the long boxing career that Holly Holm had, but Manon Fioro has less idea of, uh, less notion of the idea that she could get knocked out someday. Sure. Yeah. 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 So she's more willing to, to engage. Yeah. Um, and she, yeah, she's big and strong. I mean, she has that uh-huh. that aspect of Holmes' game going for. Her. Otherwise, um, like in a broad stylistic strokes, she's she's quite a lot. She wants to have a similar fight to the one Chikagian wants to have. Uh-huh. Um, I think a lot of how this plays out hinges on Firo's willingness to get out of that fight, like. Is she willing and is she capable, really? Like, is she technically good enough as a wrestler to to hold Chukagian still? Can she get into clinches? Can she take her down? Can she use her size and strength in, like, physical tie-ups? Because if she can't, it'll undeniably be a close fight. Mm-hmm. But, like, Chukagian outpoints people. That's what yeah. She does. Yeah. And she's a, because she's ironically because she's sitting down, she's become a much better point fighter because yeah, she she's much more capable of actually seizing big moments in the rounds where it's like ooh I remember she snapped that woman's head back with that jab oh she nailed her with a big hook on the way out of the pocket um she's gotten much better at actually like creating memorable contact and, and so yeah she doesn't have to like to to be a great athlete she's at least putting enough output out there and enough of it is now meaningful that um yeah she's like she's just securing rounds in a way that she wasn't able to before yeah uh, even her close fights they're just they're less close it's much easier to pick her in the rounds that she wins and uh furo is um there are a lot of blank spaces in furo's striking yeah uh exiting exchanges in particular i mean that head kick that uh, Jennifer Maya caught her with in the first round, like Firo stepping in, she's very one and done with her striking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just kind of pulling straight back with no guard, 
no defensive awareness and just getting slapped in the cheek with a with a high kick. Um, those are moments that Chukagian is getting better and better at finding. Yeah. Uh, so I think I'm going to pick Chukagian. I think, uh, you know, I, I, Furo has looked really good. I think she's definitely on the come up. But I think uh, Chukagian has found her role as the gatekeeper to the elite in this division. And uh, I think it might just be a little too much of a uh, the kind of fight Furo, Furo normally wants to have, but just way more to deal with and a much faster pace than she's ever had to face before in that kind of fight. Yeah, it, it certainly could happen. It, it could be the case. I think the big thing for me still that I'm worried about is that Chikagian against a good athlete, especially one who's pretty big, mm-hmm. they're just like... It's hard to, for me to necessarily trust that she can stay comfortable in the kind of fight she wants to have. Sure. Let's not forget, it wasn't that long ago she lost to Jessica I. Yeah. yeah. And she just has trouble. Like, if you're a good athlete that can get to her at all, then it has t- it it takes a notable edge off her game, or it has in the past. Mm-hmm. And you know, unfortunately, like fighting the the fights she's had lately, uh, both Amanda Hebus, Jennifer Maya, Vivia Raujo, and Cynthia Calvillo, not one of them is over five foot four. No, there's some solid athletes in there. There's some solid athletes in there, but they don't have the size to really get to her. Right. She was able to just stick them at, at range and depend on the volume, just be in a place where she couldn't get hit. Yeah. And it should, you know, like the fight she had with Vivia Raja just showed how much more comfortable she's getting in that kind of fight, how much more definitive she can be in that kind of fight. Um. She styled on Araujo more more convincingly than Alexa Grasso just did. Yeah, definitely. A better version of Araujo, I think, against Grasso, but still. You know. But still, yeah. And I think that, that Fiero, like, she throws, even though she's often one and done, she throws a lot, and she throws a lot from distance. Mm-hmm. And I think she can get, I think, think she can get Juke in a, into a place where she's pretty uncomfortable with her own offense. She She has the force to put a scare in Chukagian if that is yeah. something that happens uh, that Jessica I was able to like uh, one little tie up and you're like oh damn this girl is strong one yeah. jab and you're like oh she hits harder than I want to be hit yeah and she was big and yeah and she's big enough that there's not a safe range where Chukagian can just be like oh well I can at least if I'm out here I can start every exchange and get out mm-hmm. before this person can get back to me Mm-hmm. Like that's just not going to happen against Firo. So I'm going to pick men on Firo. I think that it's right. The fight is ripe for Chukagian to play spoiler and for her to just be busier and to sit down on exchanges and to go punch for punch with Firo and be the cleaner, uh, you know, more technical, more consistent round winner. But I think that I, I, I just don't, I still don't trust Chikagian to be able to pull that off against somebody who can match her for size and speed and uh, range. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I take Furo. 
Furo has also been growing in confidence and yeah. and, and effectiveness. Yeah, I think. Uh, but unless she adds yet another level, which she very well may, uh, I think this this looks enough like a coin flip fight that I'm willing to take a chance on yeah. the uh, the veteran who has also just been steadily getting more comfortable. And I don't yeah. know, this just seems like the natural role for her in this division is yeah. like some new prospect comes in, has a couple wins because most of the division is, you know, largely trash. And then Chukagian is just like competent and consistent. Yep. No, I mean, I there Chukagian is better poised to win this fight than any point that she would have been in the past, yeah. unquestionably. And and more so than anyone that Firo has fought yet. Yeah. So so to step up for Firo, I'll, I'll take a chance on the on Caitlin. Yeah. Uh, Man on Firo is a pretty decided favorite. Opened at minus one seventy five, dropped to minus two twenty two. It's currently at minus two fifteen. Caitlin Chukagian opened at plus one fifty. It's currently plus one seventy five. I think that's wide. That's honestly. considerably wide. Yeah, I think this is a, a real honest coin flip fight. Firo has, you know, her her knockouts that she's gotten have been volume breakdowns over fighters who were tiny or much worse. Yeah, you know, it really took a lot for her to beat Tab- a five foot one Tabitha Ricci. Like she did it really well. She, you know, she controlled the whole fight from beginning to end. But it's not like Firo has not shown herself at the UFC level to be such a power threat that she's just wrecking people. Absolutely not. And Chukagian is really durable and hard to beat, and throws a lot of volume. So the the likelihood is this is going to come down to a very we're going to get a Grasso Araujo kind of fight, you know, where even if in that fight you're like, oh, well, Grasso's winning these rounds because she's landing cleaner and a little more technically. Like, that is really the hair you're splitting because they're landing the exact same amount of strikes. Yeah. So I'm picking Firo for the power, but if Chukagian can easily finesse a win here, there's no reason she can't. All right. On that note, that wraps up the main card. You can find me on Twitter at these ain't Simon. You can find Connor on Twitter at Boxing Bush. You can find both of us over bloodyobo.com. Give us a like, subscribe to our podcasts on Bloody Oak Presents on SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, all those good places. And as always, the MMA Viv section is brought to you by Chris Reaney and his book, The Fine Art of Violence, which you can find over at chrisreaney.com, C-H-R-I-S-R-I-N-I.com. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Presents production. To check out more of our content, subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is titled Bloody Elbow Presents. We're also on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast, Player FM, and Amazon Music. Just search for Bloody Elbow Presents and you'll get brand new shows throughout the week, including Care Don't Care, the Level Change Podcast, the MMA Vivis Section, the 6th Round Post-Fight Show, 6th Round Retro, the MMA Depressed Us, Crooklyn's Corner, Exclusive Fighter Interviews, Show Money, Guest Podcasts, the Hey Not The Face Podcast, and radio-style play-by-play for every UFC pay-per-view. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloody elbow blog and as always on bloodyelbow.com.